So John says this first. He says, as we come to chapter three here, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. When John is talking here about the, the kind of love, he's talking about the quality of God's love. What's the kind of love that God's given to us? What's the quality of his love? I like quality things. I don't know about you, but I'm like, part of, part of the fun of like, I don't know, making purchases in life is like the hunt. Does anybody like that? You know, where you're like searching for things and you're looking for quality things and you, you want to get quality things spending good value. And John is telling us here this, is that, that we have to understand the quality, the kind of God's, uh, the kind of love that God has given to us. Now John 3.16, John's the one who tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God gave his son. That's, that's what the word of God tells us. And so, so John t- says that we're to see what is this kind of love that the father has given to us. We're to behold it. You know, some, some uh, translations use a different word than see and it's this, this idea of perceive, discern the love of God. Discover what kind of love the Father has given to us. Use your eyes. Use your senses. With your spirit, discern what has been given to you. It's like he's saying, inspect the quality of what God gave you. Inspect the quality of God's love. You know, when we, when we talk about love, the Bible, as we know, uses different, different words to describe love. Love And actually ancient Greek does. One of the words ancient Greek doesn't use is the word eros. Eros describes like sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. And that word's not used in the New Testament. But a word that is used is the word phileia, which speaks of brotherly love. The love between family members or friends or brothers in the Lord. And then that word that, that we know so well, the, the, the main word that is used in, in the New Testament for love in, in Greek is the word agape, speaking of spiritual love, speaking of God's kind of love. And so John tells us this, see what kind of love God has given to us. Inspect it. Check out the quality of this love. And he says, this is the quality of this love that he has called us Children of God, and so we are. Not just entitled, but this is what we are. We are children of God. Recognize, John says, that God in his love has bestowed upon you an identity. Isn't that an amazing thing? That he has made you his child. We are children of God. That is what we are. That is who we are. A child of God. I was thinking about it. It's like, it's no small thing to be called a a child of God. You know, I have like three children. There's only three people in this whole world that are called my children that I, that I bestow on them that identity, that identity has been given to them. And the truth is this, not everyone's my child. Those are my kids. My, they're like my favorite people in the whole world. And it's no small thing to be called a child of God because not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone is. You know, remember that, turn in your Bibles with me to uh, John, uh, where am I going? John chapter 11. John chapter 8, sorry. 
I want to read to us a little bit of the, the account of Jesus and the Pharisees as he was teaching his disciples because not everyone is called a child of God. Let's look at what Jesus said in John chapter 8. And we'll pick it up in verse 31. I'll read a section of this scripture, but he said, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, John 8, 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said, we're not born of sexual immorality. In other words, we're not illegitimate children. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God would your, was your father, were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here, and I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Je Jesus said this. He said, not everyone is a child of God. He spoke to these Pharisees and he said, your father is the devil. If, you, if, if God were your father, you would listen to, to my word. And so when we, when we look at what John's telling us here to inspect this love that's been given to us, to check the quality of it that we have been given this identity, that we have been called children of God, children, a child of God is, is an identity that is unique to those who have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ. We've been rescued. We've been redeemed and restored into right relationship with the Father who is in heaven. And this is an amazing thing, isn't it? This is an amazing kind of love. How do you describe this kind of love? So Paul said elsewhere, it's, it's wide, it's deep, it's high. Man, that we begin to grasp it. How do you describe this kind of love that Emmanuel, God, with us, God would come down. He would leave his place seated in heaven and come down and he would be born of a virgin womb and come as a child and, and he would come and reconcile the world to himself through death on the cross, through his death on the cross. 
to what can you compare that? If we're talking about qualities and the kind of love, I know nothing like the love of God. There's nothing like it. If you stop and think about it, to what could you possibly compare it? There's no quality of love that matches that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. How do you describe the, this quality of love that would say, you're a child of God. I've redeemed you. I restore you into right relationship. And so when we talk about quality, about this kind of love, we have to measure God's love against other things. You measure it against eros. No, it's better to have a relationship with Jesus. You measure it against philea. No, a relationship with God to be called his, his son or his daughter it, it is better we are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And John is going to make it clear where he's going to start to go here is this, this, this discussion on the fact that, that if you're a born-again child of God, you are going to exhibit behavior that conforms to your Father who is in heaven. You know, the greatest motivating force in all of the world is God's love. There's nothing greater than God's love to change the change the, the heart of a man or a woman. Love is the greatest drive in a human family. And just think about a man falling in love with a woman or a woman falling in love with a man and, and, and what happens in the midst of all of that and the incredible sacrifices that they will make for one another and that they will make for love. The writer of Proverbs said, in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 18 and 19, that there are three things that are too wonderful for me and a fourth that I do not understand. He said, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. It's like there's, how do you... You just do stupid things when you fall in love, I guess. You, you, you make sacrifices. You, you do whatever you have to do to protect that love, to nurture that love, to, to move that forward. And when human love is genuine, it, it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's good. And yet what John is telling us is that when we inspect the quality, the kind of God's love, that his love for his children, that he would bestow on us this identity, child of God, exceeds anything that you can experience in a human relationship. And John says the reason why the world does not know him is that it did not, sorry, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It's like, how do you expect someone to understand this kind of relationship between God and his child, between a father and his child? The world doesn't understand that. Because the world doesn't know God. Only the person who knows God through, the, through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, can fully appreciate what it means to be called, or start to appreciate what it means to be called a child of God. The world won't understand us. That's what John's saying. The world will not understand us because it did not understand him. And so look at verse 2. He says, beloved. That's an amazing thing. Just right there, child of God, beloved, which means esteemed, which means dear to me, which means my favorite, the one worthy of my love. 
It's tender. John says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John says, present tense, this is what we are right now. We are children of God. If we've put our faith in Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are a child of God. That's my identity right now. This is about understanding our identity in Christ. And, and the word of God tells us that it's the Holy Spirit that God has given to us that, that confirms with our spirit. He, he testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. The word of God teaches us that he is the deposit. That he makes that known to our spirit. That he is the deposit guaranteeing the work that is to come. The inheritance that is to come. And he confirms with us that we are sons and daughters of God. The Spirit testifies to our spirit. And so, you know, if you don't have that confirmation in your heart, if the Spirit of God is not testifying to your spirit, then saying you are a child of God, then you can't say this. You cannot say, I'm a child of God. You know, we sing that song, I'm a child of God. But if the Spirit does not Confirm that to your heart. You cannot make that declaration over yourself. You know, if you don't know if you've been saved, you can be if you come to faith in Jesus and the Spirit will come and indwell you and seal the work, the saving work of Jesus and he will be the deposit inside of you and he will confirm with your heart, to your heart, to your spirit, you're a child of God. God is going to finish his work in you. And it begins with a faith relationship with Jesus. And when we take that step, the indwelling presence of the Spirit comes. Child of God. Which is amazing because, I don't know, I look in the mirror sometimes. I hold up the mirror of God's word to my life. I'm like, child of God? I'm a mess. You ever feel like that? I'm a mess. What? Oh, look at my life. You know, look at this. Look at that. This is out of order, you know? You might look at me and go, that ain't much of a Christian. Maybe I'm looking at you thinking the same thing. I don't know. You know, what's amazing, though, is what John tells us here is that the Lord sees in you and me what he will make. He says, your identity is this. That's how the Lord sees us now. The Lord sees the finished work. Sees the finished product. I love that about the Lord. He's like, you're a child of God. It's done. You know, years ago, uh, when, when I, we were pastor, I was a youth pastor in Surrey, and it was a part-time gig, and so I, I worked with a renovation crew that was in our church, a bunch of great Christian guys, and we did installs for Home Depot. So we were like installing laminate floors, and we were installing kitchens, and we did windows. And I was just like a grunt, and would help out, and it was awesome group of guys, and they were fun to work with, and they loved Jesus, and you know, one of the things I always remember about when we were installing kitchens was this, it was like, it was always the nightmare when the homeowner would like come, and the job's like 75% done, and they're like, oh, what about that? Oh, what about that? And it's like, hey man, you know, like give us a chance. The work's not finished yet. The work's not done. We have a vision we know where it's going. And if you could just walk in at the end of this job, you'd never ask that question. You'd just walk in and go, wow, this is awesome. 
I love this kitchen, but you know, typically they'd walk in partway through and the questions would start going and it's like, well, well, just give us a chance to get there. And here's the truth. God's not finished with me yet. God's not finished with you yet. But his word promises that he who has begun a good work is going to do what? He'd be faithful to complete it. And that's what he sees in you and me. He sees the finished work. This is a story of Michelangelo that's kind of told in history about when the marble slab was delivered to him out of which he carved uh, the statue of David. And he looked at this raw piece of material and he said, it's beautiful. And his assistant said, it looks like every other piece of marble to me. He said, oh, you don't see what I see. The work that I'm going to complete and finish. Man, what will the finished work look like? Look at verse 2 again. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What does the word of God tell us about the finished work? That we will be conformed into the image of Jesus. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Many other children. God's going to finish his work in us. He's going to conform us. And so God's child, you know, I would say to you, as God's child, do you hope for the day when the work is finished? Don't you? Don't you look forward to that? Like, man, be nice when the work's done. Feels like work's never done, doesn't it? That's life. <laughs> look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John says this, if you believe Jesus is coming again and that someday you're going to see him and be like him, that will cause you to live a pure life here and now. Pure. You know, often in the Bible we, we, we see, well, this attitude of purity in the Bible is spoken of when, when the word of God tells us about living in fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord does not, you know, suggest that concept of fearing the Lord is not this concept of being terrorized by God. A life terrorized by thoughts of the Lord. Because God's word tells us he has not given us a spirit of fear. But the fear of the Lord does imply that God's children are to live in a reverent awe of their father. The fear of the Lord means this. I don't want to deliberately disobey my father in heaven. I don't want to deliberately try his patience. And that's where the, the lives of those who believe in the lives of those who do not know Jesus differ. It has to do with identity. We are the children of God. You know, when an unbeliever sins, they are a creature who is sinning against their creator. But when a follower of Jesus sins, they are a child of God sinning against their father. The unbeliever sins against God's law, but the believer sins against God's love. Look what he says in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
You know that when he appeared, that you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 4, everyone who makes the practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. I was thinking about practice because we have practiced during the week. Coaching hockey and involved in that. And at it we practice, we, we, we focus on skills. You know, we focus on individual skills. We focus on team skills. We focus on tactics. And we we come together and we have these times of practice because when it comes to game time, we want to be proficient. We want to execute with skill something together and, and we want to get desired results, so we practice. And desired results is this, we want pucks in the back of the net. <laughs> we want, you know, check marks in the, in the W column, the win column. That's why you practice, you, you repeat you rehearse and you go over the exercise and you do it until it's custom and it's natural to you and it's your habit and you run through the plan so that you get the desired outcome. And John tells us this, that you can make sin your practice. You practice sin and sin becomes your lifestyle. Lawlessness. You know what lawlessness is? Anarchy. Disorder. Chaos. Lack of control. Lack of restraint. Crime. It's rebellion. It's rebellion against God. That is sin. That is lawlessness. And this is referring to a person who blatantly and habitually and continually practices sin. Note it's a, it's a person. It's not a child of God. A child of God cannot practice sin. That's what we're going to see here. You know, there's, there's a difference between committing sin and practicing sin. There's a difference between, you know, a participation in sin and living in sin. There's a difference between living in the pig pen and recognizing, Lord, I'm a prodigal. I found myself in the pig pen. And I've come to my senses and I've got to get out of here. You know, that's the story of the prodigal son, right? He found himself in the pig pen. He wasn't a pig, but he found himself in the pig pen. And when he realized where he was, he turned to his father and he went home. You know, what is sin? What is this lawlessness? God, God has made certain laws and his laws, uh, his laws were never meant to save us. His laws were meant to reveal to us our need for a Savior. And the law will never save me, but when I put my life side by side with the law of God, what, what, do, what does it reveal? What do you and I discover about ourselves? We discover, man, I'm a sinner. I fall short of the glory of God. I fall short of God's standards. The law reveals you're lawless. Your very life is anarchy. There is disorder compared to who God is and what he expects. There's chaos. There's a lack of control and a lack of restraint. And it's crime and rebellion against the law of God. The law was given to reveal sin. But check out verse 5. 
You know that he appeared, who? Jesus. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. Jesus came, Emmanuel, God with us. And he died and he gave his life to take away our sins. That's the reason he came. Totally motivated by the Father's love. Totally motivated by agape. Motivated by his desire to obediently fulfill the will of his Father. And there was rebellion in the heart of humanity. Rebellion in the heart of human beings and it's sin. And Jesus came to take away sin. That's what John tells us. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is what? It's death. The payment for sin is death and Jesus did this to take away sin. He offered himself in your place. He offered himself as your substitution he offered himself to the Father as a substitution for the sins of the entire world. Your life for his. His life for yours. That he could take away sin. And he was pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. What kind of love is this? that we should be called children of God. He was crushed. You know, the, the definition of the word crushed is to be deformed. He was deformed for our iniquities. Or, or it means pulverized. He was pulverized for our iniquities. His beaten body was nailed to that cross and when the work was finished, he said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost. He surrendered. And they took his body down from that cross and they buried him in a tomb. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. Death could not hold him down. He was raised from the dead and he defeated sin and he defeated death and he defeated the devil and he ascended to the right hand of the Father who is in heaven where he is now seated until he appears again. John says he appeared to take away sins. But when he appears again, he will, he will appear again to take his own to be with him that they may be where he is. And when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so John says in verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Throughout First John, it's been a couple weeks since we've been here, but we've seen this word abide in a number of spots throughout First John already. And, and John is calling us to abide in Jesus, to make him our home, to make Jesus our, our dwelling place, to totally depend on him for nourishment to totally depend on Jesus for our source of life, 
to make our home in him, to make Jesus our very life. So he says again in verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one, keeps, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And so John tells us, the believer who abides in Jesus does not sin and, sorry, does not practice sin and does not live in sin. The sinner, the one who does not know Jesus lives in sin all the time. But the child of God has a new nature. They have a new nature and they cannot live a sinful, rebellious life. Only pigs live in pig pens. Sons get out of the pig pen. Daughters get out of the pig pen. The prodigal son got himself there. But he got himself out and the child of God can get themselves into the pig pen. But they will most certainly get themselves out of the pig pen. Because they're going to look to the father. Why? Because they are a child of God. That is their identity. The father is righteous. And because the father is righteous, the child desires to be righteous. And to live a righteous life like their father. You know, we had our pastor's conference this week. We were up at Stillwood. It was a good time. It was a busy week, you know. Marriage retreat, which was great. Ministry conference for pastors and leaders at the start of the week. And Pastor Wayne Taylor was there. And um, he's a good man, you know. He like pastored in Seattle for more than 40 years, the same church. He's just, re- just handed off the church to uh, a young man. And uh, he was up just sharing. Their, their church has planted hundreds of churches. It's just like cool to see how God's just done this work. And Wayne was talking about when someone comes to him and, and they're wrestling with an issue of sin and just sensing like, am I ever going to have victory over this? Like, is, is there ever going to be freedom? What's going on with me? And Wayne just said, I always counsel someone when they come in that situation that the fact that you're here right now, the fact that you've made the effort to come and see me and to pour out your heart is fact that God is going to bring you victory because you're not a pig. You want out of the pig pen. You want out of the pig pen. And you know, when you think about it, it's like in our lives, I would just say this, that a lack of repentance and a lack of remorse with regards to sin is very, very dangerous. You cannot practice sin and be a child of God. You cannot. And God provides the power that's available to deliver us from the habit of sinning, from the practices of sin. That's what John is telling us here. This isn't condemnation. I really don't think, as I, as I was studying this, I'm like, this isn't a word of condemnation. This is a word of motivation. Because if you're a child of God, you cannot be happy in sin. Because God's children have the nature of their father, their righteousness. And the whole work of the cross is denied when someone professes to be a sin and yet deliberately practices sin. A a person who deliberately and habitually sins is proving they do not know Jesus and they're not abiding in him. 
So John is telling us there, there needs to be a motivation to get out. To not practice. Look at verse 7. Again, so tender as he's telling us these things. They're heavy words, but look at little children. Little children. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Again, little, verse, verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Little children, John says. John, John's talking to those who belong to God. And what's the logic? He says this, If a man or a woman knows God, they will obey God. And so for a child of God, like I said, this, this is not condemnation. This is motivation. It's this call. Get out of the pig pen. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son with a heart of true repentance and then get back up. And the, you know, if you're in sin, then, then get back up in the power of God. Call on Jesus and repent. Turn from it and get back up in the power of the Spirit and live as a child of God. You know, if you stumble, we stumble, right? We all stumble. But if you stumble, know this. As John's already told us, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive you your sin and purify you from all unrighteousness. The, you get back up. That's the difference between the righteous man and the unrighteous man. The righteous man, though he falls seven times, he gets back up because he's a child of God. What are we practicing? Children of God, what are you practicing? We're to practice righteousness. It's interesting. You know how to think about that? You can practice sin or you can practice righteousness. Before Jesus, man, we practiced sin, didn't we? We were proficient. We were good at sin. But now because of Jesus, we practice righteousness. And in his grace, he is making us proficient and effective and, and good at, at, at righteousness, at the practice of righteousness. And, and the beauty of it is this is the enemy's defeated. And we're going to run the score up as we practice. And it comes a game time. This is going to work out for us because we're children of God. And we're going to chalk up W's in the win column. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Paul tell, uh, John tells us a second thing. That, that Jesus appeared for, and it was to destroy the works of the devil. The scripture gives him different names. He's called Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies, essentially, is what it means. The devil, the accuser, accuser of the brethren, Satan, or adversary, or enemy, Apollyon, 
Abaddon, the destroyer. He's called the prince of the air or the prince of this world. I had a pastor that I served with who would refer to the enemy as Slewfoot, old Slewfoot. <laughs> I was like that. And this prince of the air, his goal, his mission is to oppose all things Jesus and to attack God's children. And to make sure others don't become God's children. But here's some things we know from the scripture about this enemy. He's not eternal. He's a created being. He was not created sinful. His present His present nature is the result of his past rebellion, his lawlessness against God. And he is a rebel to all things Jesus, to all things God. Jesus is obedient to all things of the Father. He's the eternal Son, the eternal Son of God. And and through the work of the cross, Jesus has destroyed sin, death, and the devil. That means this, that he has robbed Satan of his power. This is literally what John is saying. As he says that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil, he's saying this, Jesus appeared to make the devil inoperative in his power. He robbed him. I keep, when I keep thinking about this, I keep thinking of Jesus as a bank robber. It just doesn't quite fit for me. I'm like, wow. But he robbed him. He robbed Satan. He robbed him. And two things that we should know about the inoperative power of Satan. He's inoperative. So what has he got? What's he got left in his toolbox? Well, he's got the power of suggestion. You know, a little voice. Influencing and appealing to the desires of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And believers, we as even as children of God can be influenced by that. Those whispers of suggestion. He has power when people submit their lives to him. Jesus has robbed him, but, but when unbelievers sin, they do what is natural to the nature of their father. That is the devil, right? And Satan gains power in lives as they submit to him, and it can go so far as demonic possession. And, and you know, Jesus told a parable in in. Luke chapter 11, he compared this world to a palace that contained valuable items and goods. And in Luke 11, he says that there's a strong man that guards that palace and Satan is that strong man. And the valuable items that are in that palace are God's creation, men and women. And the only way as Jesus tells this parable, the only way to release these items of value is to bind the strong man, and that's what Jesus did when he came on the cross. He robbed Satan of his power. He made him inoperative, and Jesus invaded. Think about Jesus doing that. Jesus invaded sinful the sinful world, his own creation. He invaded that which had been captured by the power of sin and the power of Satan. And so John says, don't be deceived. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. It's interesting. Look at, let's keep reading. Verse 9. Read the last two verses that we're going to go over this morning. 
No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We're going to see next week that John's going to get, we're going to follow the thread of the very last part of chapter 10. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. John first here is talking about righteousness. He says this, this sign of righteousness is the sign that you are a child of God. The second sign he's going to give us is this, that you'll love your brothers in the Lord. You know, a child of God is given a new nature when they come to Jesus, when they come to faith in Jesus. It's called the second birth, right? To be born again. To be born of the Spirit. And what John is telling us here is that the new nature does not sin. It doesn't. The prodigal son, if we go back to him, he, he, could not, he could not stay in the pig pen because he wasn't a pig. He was a son. <laughs> That's funny. Nancy keeps laughing at me over there, making me smile, Nancy. It's what John is saying here. He's not saying that the believer is sinless. Don't, I don't want you to think that, okay? Let's not grab that. But the idea is that the person who follows Jesus, who is a child of God, will not be able to live and abide and practice sin. You won't be able to do it. Your new nature in Christ will not allow it. The indwelling presence of the Spirit will not allow it. And so what happens is when we're born again, all of a sudden these two natures, the flesh and the Spirit, for the first time begin to battle in us. And for the very first time, we experience what spiritual warfare is when we come to faith in Jesus. And that warfare is working itself out in our body. The flesh, and say, flesh devil, and sin are saying one thing. And the new nature and the Spirit of God are saying another thing to us. And we must conform into the image of righteousness. word of God says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You know, I've heard Carrie tell this story a number of times about a, about a Native American who explained to his friend one day as they were walking down the road, he said, I have two dogs living inside of me. One's a mean dog and one's a good dog. And these two dogs, they're always fighting inside of me. And the, the mean dog wants me to do bad things. And the good dog wants me to do good things. And then he said to his friend, do you know which dog wins? His friend said, no, which dog? He said, the one I feed the most. The dog I feed the most. Children of God, child of God. Romans 6, verse 12 says this, Do not offer the parts of your body as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Psalm 119, How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. There's a story told of a Sunday school teacher who was explaining to a class of teenage teenagers about the old nature and the new nature. And in scripture, we're given this picture of the first Adam and the last Adam. Our old nature came from the first Adam and our new nature comes from Jesus, who's called the last Adam. And the teacher read 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to the class that says this, the first man, Adam, became a living soul and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. teacher asked, what, what do you think that means? Like, what do you think that means to us? And a student spoke up and he said, that means there's two atoms living inside of me. That's right, said the teacher. The idea of two atoms living in me, said the student, really helps me in fighting temptation. Because it makes me realize, this kid said, I think this is amazing. He says, it makes me realize that when temptation comes knocking, if I send the first Adam to answer the door, I will sin. But if I send the last Adam, I'll get victory. What's the call here? What's the call of this text? It's this, child of God. To what can you compare the love of God? Nothing. There's nothing in this life that compares to what Jesus has done for us. So make righteousness your practice if you're in the pig pen get out of the pig pen if you confess your sin he is faithful and just and will forgive your sin and purify you from all unrighteousness make righteousness your practice you're a child of god you're a child of god be motivated not discouraged say jesus i long for your appearing i'm so thankful you're going to finish your work in me.